Good morning, Bethel. Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Matthew 5, 1 to 12. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 809. So Matthew 5, 1 to 12, page 809 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Starting in verse 1, the text says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. You can have a seat. All right. So, like it or not, it's the time of year for New Year's resolutions. So I don't know if uh, you all made any, um, but I do know, as I was studying this week, I came across a study that said around 45% of Americans usually do make resolutions, and they're mostly related to things like self-improvement, health, finances, uh, and relationships. In 2015, for example, the top 10 resolutions included items like losing weight, getting organized, spending less and saving more, enjoying life to the fullest, staying fit and healthy, quitting smoking, and spending more time with family. Now, those can be good and worthwhile goals. Uh, It's commendable to get healthy, to manage your finances well, and to spend time with your loved ones. But here's one of the difficulties with the resolutions that we make. Uh, Only 8% of people, according to this study, actually complete them. So apparently we aren't the most persistent bunch. Uh, So given that information, it might seem a little odd this morning that I want to encourage you, I want to encourage all of us to not just adopt a New Year's resolution, but to adopt an everyday one. Matthew 5, 1 to 12, I think, leads us to that very place. It gives us a daily model for life as disciples in Jesus' kingdom. And as we'll see, it's far different from some of the typical resolutions we make and that God's the one who sustains us in this effort. Uh, God's the one who gives us grace when we fail. God's the one who gives us sweet and precious promises. And so specifically, this everyday resolution calls for four things. One, know what the Lord requires and promises. Two, repent of our sins. Three, believe what the Lord has done, is doing, and will do for us. And then four, obey the voice of the King. So let's look at that first point together. Know what the Lord requires and promises. Look with me again at the beginning of Matthew 5. 
So in verse 1 there, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So by the time we get to this point in Matthew, Jesus has begun his public ministry. Jesus has urged people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's called his first disciples. He's taught in synagogues. He's healed the sick. He's healed the demon-possessed. Understandably, great crowds have started to follow him, perhaps out of curiosity, genuine interest, or a desire to be healed. Some people, though, have pressed in further and followed Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one who would come and deliver God's people. And these folks are referred to as Jesus' disciples, and they're the ones to whom he's speaking, starting here in chapter 5. And as the Messiah, the word that Jesus delivers here is an important, authoritative one. So one commentator, R.T. France, he points this out, and he says that Jesus going up on a mountain could be a connection to Moses and that Moses received the law from God on a mountain. That sitting down, which is how Jesus is described in verse 1, was, quote, the posture for authoritative teaching. And that the phrase here, opened his mouth, is, quote, a familiar Old Testament idiom to introduce a significant pronouncement. So this is a significant authoritative word that Jesus is bringing starting here uh, in chapter 5. And it's no wonder that by the end of Jesus' sermon, Matthew says in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, that the crowds, who remember they weren't the primary audience of Jesus' message, but they were apparently listening in, that the crowds um, were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So we need to recognize at the outset, when we're coming to uh, Matthew 5, when we're listening to the Sermon on the Mount, This is the word that we desperately need to hear from the Messiah, from the King who's come to save his people. And in this sermon, which spans from chapters 5 to 7, Jesus addresses his disciples. And what he's doing is he's explaining what life is like in his kingdom. He's explaining what it looks like to be a disciple of the Lord. Uh, a kingdom citizen. And in verses 3 to 12, which is our text for today, Jesus gives us what are known as the Beatitudes. So you won't find that word uh, in verses 1 to 12, but Beatitudes, that finds its root in a Latin word that means happiness or blessedness. And so given the uh, frequent occurrences of the word blessed in the chapter, Beatitudes is kind of a catch-all term to sum up the whole of what Jesus is saying uh, in these verses. Um, But it's important to point out out a couple of things here. Uh, These Beatitudes, um, they not only serve as descriptions of the blessed life, uh, or as this commentator R.T. France puts it, the good life, but they're also implied commands. So Jesus is saying those who have this type of character, those who have this type of heart, are the ones who are blessed. But we need to be sure to recognize that these Beatitudes are not entrance requirements to get into the kingdom of heaven. To to be saved, to receive salvation from the Lord, to gain entrance into his kingdom, we have but to feel our need and come empty-handed to Jesus. 
We see our sin. We, we take our sin to the Lord and confess it and trust in Christ to forgive us. And like that, we gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven, not because of anything we've done, but because God has graciously shown mercy to us and allowed us to respond in repentance and faith. And we also need to see, though, that these descriptions, they work to provide a picture of what Christ's disciples should look like. So they're not isolated commands, isolated promises. Um, Dan Doriani, in this really helpful book called The Sermon on the Mount and the Character of a Disciple, which I would commend to you, uh, he says this. He says, quote, We must see the Beatitudes as a multifaceted description of a whole person. They're not seven or eight random statements about virtue. Rather, they are a holistic portrait of a kingdom citizen. So I think the question that we need to ask at this point is, well, what is the character that Jesus both commends and commands of his disciples in the Beatitudes? Well, he makes eight statements, gives us eight Beatitudes. And let's take a real quick look at each one here. So he says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These individuals are those who realize their spiritual need. They know that they need the Lord. They're aware of their sin. They're aware of their guilt. And so Jesus, in chapter 4, verse 17, began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The poor in spirit are those who have seen their sin, taken that sin to the Lord, trusted Christ, and gained entrance. The promise for them is that theirs is the kingdom. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These individuals are grieved over their sin, like genuine grief, not grief over what their sin has caused or what their sin has cost them, but grief that they've sinned against God and man. They're grieved over what they see, what they experience in our sin-sick world. And Jesus promises these individuals that they will be comforted. That looks forward, I think, to Revelation 21.4 where the text says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse five, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These are the ones who are humble. They're gentle. They don't steamroll people in order to get their own way. Uh, Doriani, in his book, he explains it this way. He says that meekness is, quote, the gentle, humble, unassuming approach of one who knows his spiritual poverty and lets it guide his behavior. The mark of meekness is not the absence of assertiveness. It's the absence of self-assertion, end quote. So to the meek, Jesus promises that they'll inherit the earth, which I think looks forward to Jesus' future kingdom when those who have trusted in him at his return will reign with him forever and ever. Verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These individuals deeply desire to be made like Jesus, to be righteous before the Lord and live in the way that he requires. So Jesus promises these that they will be satisfied. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. These individuals extend forgiveness to those who wrong them. They hurt for the broken. They show compassion to those who are in need. 
And Jesus' sweet promise is that they will receive mercy. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. These persons are righteous from the inside out. They want to be like Christ through and through in every facet of life. And Jesus' promise is that they'll see God looking ahead to Revelation 22.4 where we read, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. These folks are intent on seeing the gospel of peace drive out darkness in our world. They share the gospel with those who don't know Christ and they help resolve conflicts uh, and strive for peace with others. And Jesus says that they'll be called sons of God, members of his family by grace. And then lastly, verses 9 to 12, 9 to 12 say blessed, or I'm sorry, 10 to 12 say blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he adds to that, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these individuals, they live in the way that God requires and they suffer for it. They refuse to shirk back from godly living even at their own expense. They consider it a good thing to follow the Lord. And if suffering comes, they don't run from it. And like Jesus does for the poor in spirit, he says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this brief overview of the Beatitudes barely scratches the surface of what all we could say here. There's so much more that we could say. So let me encourage you to go home, to read Matthew 5, 1 to 12, to meditate on it, to pray through it. Uh, let me encourage you to pick up this book by Dan Doriani. It's incredibly helpful and accessible. But press into the Beatitudes and seek to learn more about these sweet promises and blessings that Jesus offers. This is truly the blessed life. This is the heart of the disciples of Jesus. And as those who are following Jesus, we daily need to know and remind ourselves of this. We need to know what the Lord requires. And by the Spirit's help, we need to pursue this kind of character and cling to the promises Jesus gives us. But this exercise, and this is our second point, should lead us to daily repentance. So here's the problem for us when we come to the Beatitudes. This describes the heart of the disciple of Christ. This gives us very sweet promises explaining why this really is the best life. But the problem is, if we're honest, we have to admit that we haven't lived up to the standard. I mean, this standard is incredibly high, isn't it? So the picture that Jesus is presenting of kingdom citizens hasn't and at times doesn't describe us. Instead of being poor in spirit, we've been prideful. We haven't run to the Lord with our needs, but we've tried to live in our own strength. Instead of mourning, we've treated our sin cavalierly and haven't sought by God's grace to put it to death. Instead of being meek, we've pridefully, selfishly sought and demanded our own way. Instead of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we've desired things like control, 
money, praise, and pleasure. Instead of being merciful, we've withheld forgiveness from those who've wronged us, perhaps seeking to make them pay just a little bit extra for sins they've committed against us. We've tried to make sure they feel bad enough before we extend forgiveness. Instead of being pure in heart, we've cared more about what we look like on the inside or on the outside than on the inside. We've treasured the praise of man instead of God's word for us. We've been prideful. We've been selfish. We've been like the Pharisees, who Jesus says in chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Instead of being peacemakers, we failed to share the gospel with others, caring too much about our own reputation and too little about those who are far from the Lord. We haven't sought reconciliation with those who have, who have something against us. And instead of refusing to shy away from persecution for living the way God requires, we've sought to blend in so as not to stir the pot and call attention to ourselves and the gospel we believe. We've sought to do what we can to avoid potential persecution. And I'm sure we could go on. I'm sure that we could get even more specific with this list of our many wrongs, but hopefully we see the point. Yes, the Beatitudes show us a better path. They show us, as R.T. France says, the good life, the life, the heart that God blesses. But we all, in some way, shape, or form, have failed to live this way. And that's a problem. We've sinned against God and man. We've proven that we only deserve God's judgment, not his blessing. So what should our response be? Well, when we see our sin, we could run and hide. We could try to cover it up, hope nobody finds out. We could wallow in self-pity, thinking, I can't believe I did that. Or how did I just do that again? We could try to work harder, maybe make up for what it is that we've done. But look, none of those options are ever going to satisfy us. None of those bring peace and forgiveness. They'll only serve to pile up the guilt and shame we already feel. And so when we sin, and this happens daily, even in the life of disciples, we must repent. We must forsake our sin and turn to the Lord. He pours out his grace on those who are humble and contrite in spirit. But we must also believe, which is our third point, believe what the Lord has done, is doing, and will do for us. And so hardwired into this passage is so much grace, such wonderful good news for sinners. So the passage helps us, I think, uh, see what God has done, what Christ has done for us. It drives us to that point. Because again, if we're honest and read the Beatitudes, we can see our failure and miss the blessing. But here's the great news. While we've failed to model the character described in the Beatitudes, Jesus has exhibited absolute, total perfection 
on our behalf. So just consider quickly here, just from the Gospel of Matthew, how Jesus does this, how he models that character. So he's poor in spirit, not in the sense that he sees his sin, his guilt, and his need for forgiveness. Remember, he's perfect. But he is in the sense that he knew his need for regular communion with the Father. Jesus is a man of prayer. He teaches us how to pray in chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. And then in chapter 26, to 30, in chapter 26 verses 36 to 46, he models prayer for us. He's experiencing extreme sorrow leading up to the cross. He knows what's coming. And he falls on his face before God in prayer while his disciples are sleeping. Jesus mourns in chapter 23, verses 37 to 39, not over his own sin, because he was perfect, but over unrepentant Jerusalem. So he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to to desolate to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is meek. Jesus is gentle and humble. Listen to the invitation he gives in chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So much grace. Jesus, in chapter 3, verse 15, asked John the Baptist to baptize him to fulfill all righteousness. He never sinned, not even once. And so then in chapter 27, verse 4, after Judas has betrayed Jesus, he falls into despair and he says that he sinned by betraying innocent blood. Jesus is merciful. He heals the sick and demon-possessed in chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. He has compassion on the crowds in chapter 9, verse 36, and chapter 14, verse 14. And he mercifully restores sight to two blind men in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Jesus is pure in heart. So much so that in chapter 26, verses 59 and 60, when the chief priests and the council look for a way to condemn him so they can kill him, they have to try to bring in false witnesses to do it because they don't have a charge against him. Jesus offers peace to those who receive his disciples in chapter 10, verse 13. And finally, Jesus, as the truly innocent sufferer, was persecuted and reviled without cause. He never sinned, yet he was betrayed, he was condemned, and he was crucified as a common criminal. So Jesus succeeds where we failed. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He died on the cross in our place, and he rose from the grave in victory. He accomplished everything that's necessary for our salvation, our eternal blessing, our entrance into the kingdom. And God's promise for us is that if we but see our need, if we turn from our sin and turn in faith to Christ, he will save us and he will count Jesus' righteousness, that perfect record, as our very own. So that has a lot of implications for us. First, if you're here with us this morning and if you aren't a Christian, 
If you aren't trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, please hear that good word. Yes, you've sinned against God and man, and yes, you deserve judgment. But look at what Christ has done for sinners. He has provided a way for you to be made right with God. How gracious is that? So make today the day of salvation. Don't wait until you feel you're right to come to the Lord, until you feel like you've done enough to come to the Lord. That's never going to happen. And Jesus doesn't require that of you. Come to God. Come to Christ empty-handed today and trust in him to save you. And his promise is that he will and the kingdom is yours. And for those of us who are trusting in Christ, who are following him as his disciples, see this good news. If we're trusting in Jesus, his righteousness has been credited to our account. And so that means that daily when we sin, when we see how we've failed to measure up, we can rest secure in the promise that Jesus has measured up for us. So yes, when we see our sin, we must repent. But when we see our sin, we must also look to Jesus, what he has done, and believe. But there's more grace here. So not only in believing what Jesus has done, but also in what God is doing and will do for us as his people. And so look with me again at these Beatitudes. I want to point out something here for us. So in verse 3, the first Beatitude in this section, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now if you're using your pew Bible, flip to the next page, page 810. This is verse 10. Look at the last Beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that the blessing is the same. So verse 3, the poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake have the kingdom of heaven. Those are present tense blessings. But then look in the middle. All of the Beatitudes listed in the middle from verse 4 to verse 9. The blessings there are all future tense. The mourn, those who mourn will be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. The merciful will receive mercy. The pure in heart will see God. The peacemakers will be called sons of God. So what are we to make of that? The first and the last Beatitudes end with present tense blessings. Theirs is the kingdom, but the ones in the middle are future. I think that highlights the already not yet aspect of the kingdom of heaven. So as Jesus' disciples, as those who have turned to him in faith and trusted him for forgiveness, we have the rock-solid assurance that ours is the kingdom of heaven. That's a very good and precious promise. But we also know that the, the rest of these Beatitudes, the ones that come in the middle, some of them we have in part, but in the future we'll have in full. 
So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted, are, to, are we to read that and think, wait, then is God going to wait until I mourn enough to comfort me in the future? Or verse five, is, is God waiting for me to uh, show how meek I am? Verse six, is God waiting until I hunger and thirst for righteousness to like the right level? Is God waiting, verse seven, until I show the kind of mercy he requires and then in the future he's gonna give me mercy? Or is God waiting till I exhibit perfect purity in heart? Is God waiting till I make peace in the right way to call me a son of God? Well, this is the already not yet aspect of the kingdom. Some of these promises we already have now. I think it's purposeful that the Beatitudes begin and end with present tense assurance and blessing. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. But it's also so gracious uh, what God lists otherwise with the other Beatitudes. In the future, yes, we will be comforted. But by grace, God has enabled us to mourn our sin now and he gives us by grace the strength to continue living that way. One day the meek will inherit the earth. Yes, that is a future blessing. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Yes, a future day is coming when God will perfect us and we will be fully satisfied in his presence. But until that point, ours is the kingdom and God is growing us in our hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. God isn't waiting until we exhibit perfect mercy to show us mercy. He's already done that in Christ. But a day is coming when he will finally fully perfect us and we will receive mercy forever and ever in his kingdom. And the same with the pure in heart. The day is coming when we will see God. And now, ours is the kingdom. God is growing us in our purity in heart as disciples. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. If you are in Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus for, for the forgiveness of your sins, he has already adopted you into his family. You are now a son of God. But a future day is coming when you will dwell with your father in heaven part of, as part of his family. We will dwell with God. He will be uh, our God in heaven. We will be his people. So do you see, there's so much blessing in this passage. It drives us to see what Jesus has done for us. But it also drives us to see our uh, present and future sta standing with the Lord. Currently, ours is the kingdom. That is a current reality for us. And while we don't fully exhibit the character Jesus requires now, while we fail daily, God is by grace working in our hearts to conform us to the character of Jesus. John Piper talks about this. In a, in a great sermon on the Beatitudes, this already not, as, not, already not yet aspect of the kingdom. He says this, quote, try to grasp this 
and make it part of your very being. Many passages of scripture teach that God will show mercy on us in the future if we live a certain way now. Many other passages of scripture teach that God has already shown us mercy, enabling us to live a certain way now. These are not inconsistent. This is the very fabric of biblical life. We are born anew by the mercy of God. We are sanctified by the mercy of God. And when we get to the judgment seat of God, he will say, you are still a sinner, but I see in your life the distinguishing fruit of my son's mercy. Your mercy on others is the evidence of his mercy in you. And for his sake, I now show you mercy again. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the good word that we're going to hear as Jesus' disciples. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So no, the Beatitudes are not requirements that we have to meet to enter the kingdom. These, pro- these provide a picture for us of what the disciple of the Lord looks like. They help us know what God requires. They help us see where we don't measure up and they drive us to repentance. But they also drive us to faith. Jesus lived this out perfectly for us. God has already adopted us into his family, already made us part of his kingdom. And God is working in us enabling us to conform to this character so much so that he can guarantee us these future promises. They are ours. They are ours to treasure and take hold of. And so we need to know what God requires. We need to repent of our sins. We need to believe what God has done, is doing, and will do for us And then lastly, we need to obey the voice of the king. So do you see how this model can daily transform our thinking and our actions? If daily we're knowing what the Lord requires of us, if daily we are repenting and believing, that changes us. Repentance and faith is not just the way to enter the kingdom of heaven. Repentance and faith is the daily practice of the disciple of the Lord. This is a pattern that we practice every single moment. Every day, we need to be repenting and believing the gospel. Tim Keller, a pastor in uh, New York, uh, has a statement that I love. He says, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. I hope this is helping us see just a facet of why that's true. We don't need the gospel. We don't repent and believe just to be saved and then we move past it. No, we need this good news every day. Every day we must repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. In in doing that, we're obeying the voice of King Jesus here. We're showing, even as the first beatitude lists, how we're poor in spirit. We're recognizing as we do that our daily need for grace. We're showing our mournful spirit, how we're mourning the sin within us and praying for God to conform us to Jesus' image. So as we repent and believe, we're even living out the heart described in some of these beatitudes. But notice how this can change our behavior. 
Why should we seek to put on um, meekness, humility? Well, because Christ perfectly showed humility for us. Because God one day will show grace to us as his humble people, present and future promises. Jesus showed humility for us. He's brought us into his kingdom and God is making us daily a humble people and he's promising us that we'll inherit the earth. How can we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, we can look back and find so much comfort in the fact that Jesus exhibited this for us. He embodied perfect righteousness. So that enables us to strive for that too. We're not pushing for that in our own strength in order to be made righteous before God, but we strive for this righteousness daily because Jesus is our righteousness. He's brought us into his kingdom. And we have the promise that one day we will be fully satisfied. And notice that's not just a promise out for eternity that we can loosely grab hold of. That's a promise for tomorrow. Jesus tomorrow is satisfying us with his word as we seek hunger and thir- as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. The merciful. So how can we seek daily to be merciful to obey Jesus here? Well, we can when we know that Jesus was completely merciful for us. He has shown us so much mercy in the cross. And he's saved us and he's making us a merciful people, promising us that we will receive mercy. Again, that is a future promise for us that yes, we will know fully in eternity, but that's a promise for us today. As we're showing mercy, we know, we're assured that the Lord is, will show us mercy. So this changes us in the sense that we don't need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder to fulfill the Beatitudes. It changes us when we know that Jesus has fulfilled these on our account, that he is by his spirit conforming us into this character. And that because he's brought us into this kingdom, these future promises are ours. We can take them to the bank, some of them in the future later, but some of them in the future as in tomorrow. So rest secure in those promises and let that drive you to obedience. Let's practice what Paul describes in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's obey the voice of our king. Let's work hard to conform to the image of Christ, but let's do so knowing that the Lord is providing the grace we need to ensure that this happens. Remember, theirs is the kingdom. If you're trusting in Christ, yours is the kingdom. God is conforming you into this character. So strive for it and believe that God is doing what he said he's going to do. And so when you fail, and you will, I will, when you fail, 
consider these promises. Look at what Christ has done and find your identity there. My identity is not in me being a perfectly merciful person. My identity is in Jesus, who was perfectly merciful for me. So when we fail, rest in what Christ has done and trust that God, by his grace, is conforming you into the character of Christ. He's enabling you uh, to strive after the heart of the disciple Jesus describes in the Beatitudes. Listen to this word from John Newton. I love this quote. There's so much grace here, and I think it is uh, so applicable to what we're discussing this morning. He says, Fear not, only believe, wait, and pray. Expect not all at once. A Christian is not of hasty growth like a mushroom, but rather like the oak, the progress of which is hardly perceptible, but in time becomes a great, deep-rooted tree. So yes, we will sin. Let's not let this passage give us license because it doesn't do that. But in our sin, let's run to God in repentance and let's believe what he's said is true of us. Jesus is our righteousness. Ours, if we're trusting in him, is the kingdom. These promises are sure for us as Christians. So don't get discouraged when you see how you don't measure up. Instead, follow these wise wor- those wise words from John Newton. Believe, wait, pray. Follow the words uh, of the popular hymn says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy, maybe we could say blessed in Jesus, than to trust and obey. And then hear this last word from, again, Dan Doriani in this book, The Sermon on the Mount. He says, quote, it is God's design that we should aspire to a character that is ever more like the character of Jesus. God permits us to pursue that goal. More importantly, he gives us grace for the journey, making it a privilege rather than a burden. By grace, God sent his son. By grace, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. By grace, he atoned for our sins. By grace, the Father raised Jesus from the tomb and sent the Spirit to testify to him. By grace, God completes his work by changing our hearts so that we love and believe him. This is how we become like Christ, and catch this, from heart to toe. That's how we become like Jesus. We know what God requires. We repent of our sins every day. We believe what Christ has done for us, what he is doing for us, what he will do for us. And we strive to obey, knowing that it's God who's enabling us, giving us grace in the effort. So this year, let's make our resolutions, if you like resolutions. Just be sure to make those with the right motive. But let's be sure to daily be resolved to know what God requires, repent of our sin, believe what he's done, is doing, and will do for us, and obey the voice of the king. One of the ways we can do this as a church family is through communion. So we come to the table on the first Sunday of every month. And when we do so, we come as sinners 
and need of grace. And we have the opportunity as we come to the Lord's table to confess and turn away from our sin and to trust in Christ as we celebrate the grace he's shown us in dying for our sins and rising from the dead. We celebrate the grace he's shown us by eating the bread, which symbolizes his broken body, and drinking of the cup, which symbolizes his blood shed for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Christ, for Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose from the, from the dead for us and our salvation. And so, God, this morning, as we celebrate Christ's work, as we remember his broken body and his shed blood for us, I pray that you would help us to repent of our sins as we need. But God, help us to joyfully celebrate and remember this good work that Jesus has done for us. He's done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, everything necessary to make us righteous, to bring us into his kingdom. And so we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his good work, and we celebrate that now. In his name I pray, amen.